All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child and will give the birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I thank you for coming this morning, and if you please pull out your prayer requests if you have them, and we can pray for them today or this week. Also, too, remember that we have the shelf for the uh, people who don't have food. They can drop them off on our shelf in the hallway. Also, the baby chains, those little bottles that we have on the table, you can put your extra change for the week that will go for the support of um, moms that are unwed and also families that can't afford baby uh, stuff like diapers and, and wipes and items like that. And then also, too, out on our table here, we have the birthday for Jesus we celebrate in which we give items, and you can put them out on the table for the next two weeks that will be in our lobby. And also this week, we have so many things going on at the church. We have the prayer meeting, uh, adult Bible classes, and all kinds of ways in which you can grow in your faith. Uh, and if you'd like to know if there's something that you'd like to attend that's not on there that maybe we need to address, or let us know, and we'll be glad to do that. Also, to fill out that little slip of paper and put it in the white and polka-dotted uh, red box out in the lobby so that we have your phone number and your uh, email address or so that we can send you information if we have to close down for some weather-related reason. Also, too, if you would like to renew your commitment to the Word and would like to read the Word, uh, two ways. We have three schedules on the lob in the lobby that you can grab. Um, two are for the New Testament reading and one is for the whole Bible for 2022. It's a schedule that makes it, breaks it down really easy and helps you be able to, when you fall behind, catch up again. And also our Christmas Eve service, we have a candlelight and communion service on the 24th at 5 p.m. That's Friday this year. And then also on Sunday, we're celebrating our regular Sunday services on the 26th, 9 and 10.30. Also, if you'd like to donate a poinsettia, which you can pick up after the uh, service on Christmas Eve, there's $7 if you'd like to donate one and take one home with you. And it's for someone who you honor or some loved one that has gone and passed on into eternity that you want to be remembered. And also to now we are in the season of Advent, awaiting the arrival of Christ. And glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to those with whom God is well pleased. At this time we're going to have the Daniels families come and um, light up the Advent wreath. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be virgin with child, child and, and birth give birth to the son, and will call him Emmanuel. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, the key of the house of David. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. All of this also comes from the Lord Almighty. Wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. 
Thank you so much. Let's stand together as we sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing.
Let's stand together as we sing and worship our God and give praise to him.
receive our tithes and offerings. Steve, you want to share with us the beautiful background of this wonderful hymn, Angels We Have Heard on High? This hymn is a part of the Angels and Shepherds story from Luke 2, 8 through 15. Luke 2, 8 begins the story by telling of the appearance of the angels. Luke 2, 15 tells of the shepherds responding to the angels by going to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened. Luke 2, 13 to 14 tells of the heavenly host and their message. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom favor rests. Thank you, Steve. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as those angels watched and were stunned, overwhelmed with your glory and how you laid out the salvation plan, to a little child in Bethlehem and how they were totally surprised. What glory filled their hearts. Lord, today as we go through this Christmas season, may our hearts be filled with glory about the beautiful event and gift that you gave to us in mankind and the salvation that you provided for us and to give us the adoption as children of you. Lord, we give you praise and thanksgiving. Accept these gifts as tokens of gratitude from our heart that these people love you, want to give thanks to you, and honor your ministry in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. We thank you for the privilege that we have again as Christians to come together and worship you and give honor to your name. We praise you too, Father God, for the wonderful hope that we have in Jesus Christ who came to this earth in the advent of showing us the way by giving your life to die for us and giving us the grace that we need to get into heaven. God, what a wonderful privilege it is to just sing praise to your name and glory. And be called your children. Lord, it's so awesome, the grace that you've provided us with. And today, Father God, we praise you too for this great country that we have. We feel so blessed, Lord, and the wonderful values that were set down by you coming to this earth, Jesus, and affecting Western civilization. And to see a nation that's been built on the Judeo-Christian uh, principles and that our, our Constitution and the Bill of Rights reflect that so beautifully. We give you praise also to God for many of the blessings that you give us for houses, for homes, for freedom to get jobs that we want to get and to be able to go anywhere we want to and to be able to worship you, not being in fear of being arrested or taken away because we name the name of Jesus. And we give you thanks and praise too for the separation of our government, the executive branch, the judicial branch, and to the congressional branches to keep each other in check in this world of sin and where there's so many things that can go easily wrong. We pray about our nation. We pray for a healing. We pray for a revival in the church. And that church will lead this nation into revival and that this world will go greatly, Father. And Father God, we want to pray also, too, for our church and the challenges that are ahead of it some of the things that we're going to do and how we want to be faithful to your word in doing it, Lord. We pray, Heavenly Father, too, this morning for those in our church that we know are struggling. I thank you, Lord, for Don, whose knee is doing very well. We praise you for Nita being back with us. And we pray also, too, for Kay, who is doing very much better in her body. And we pray also, too, for those who um, have had uh, struggles in their life with their marriages and the difficulties that they have. We pray also for Lucille, Lord, for continued strength and healing for her, for Joyce, for Mary, as they deal with some of their health issues. We pray also, too, for um, those who are struggling, Lord, in their lives with uh, difficulties in marriages, those that are struggling with children who are in rebellion, and those who are struggling with addictions. We think of Ryan, and we think of Jordan, we think of David, we think of Eric, Ricky, Mitchell, and others that we know that are underneath that monkey and bondage of the addiction, that Jesus, that they can find you and their freedom that you give. We pray also too, Father God, for our <clears throat> loved ones that we know that are going to be sad this holiday season, those who've lost loved ones and that... Um, uh, will be an empty spot. Yes, we rejoice that they know their loved one's name is written in the book of life and they're enjoying heaven, but on this side of eternity, sometimes it's difficult. It can be lonely. It can be empty. And I just pray, Lord, that you'll send your Holy Spirit upon them and fill them overwhelmingly with a sense of joy and peace of Christ in their hearts. And now, Father, we pray as we come before your word that you'll speak to us Give us something that we need to hear this week that will carry us through and also be faithful witnesses to you, Jesus, in our lives. Thank you for this privilege now, Lord Jesus. 
In your name we pray. Amen. John Wooden was a basketball coach for UCLA. and He was one of the top winningest coaches in the nation. He won 12 championships in the NCAA in the first uh, in 12 years and 10 uh, championships in 12 years. Especially during the Vietnam War era and the Watergate, one of the things that Wooden had was that some of the ballplayers really appreciated him. At first, they thought he was nuts by some of the principles that he had. One such person was Bill Walton, who became a pro basketball player. But one of the things his goal was not to make them great basketball players. That was probably understood. But he said, even more than a best basketball player, I want to make you best people. Good people. People who really understand and be the best person that you can be. Because I believe, he said, that if I make you a good person and make you the best person you can be, you can be a great basketball player. I want you to be fine human beings, he would tell the team. And after thousands of maxims, that first, Bill had admit that he laughed at. He said, those things taught me a lot about life. And he said, if there's one person in his life that had made the most impact and changed his life, he said, Coach Wooden was the man who laid the framework. He said, Wooden taught me about life. And when he touched me, he touched me deep. And I grew from that. Today, we are looking at the third epistle of John. We're coming to the end of this series. And what we're finding here is that John has three people that he wants to highlight that are in the church, that are important to the church. If you remember, John wrote 1 John for general assemblies. And what they were fighting once is Gnosticism, which they did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. In fact, there was two forms of Gnosticism. There were the Centurions, which denied that Jesus was the Christ, and that there was the Docetists who believed that Jesus wasn't human. And so therefore, this battle, but they both believed that no matter what you did with your body, it wasn't a big deal. Just what your mind was okay. And John says, no. They denied that Christ had come, and John said, no, we touched him, we saw him, we lived with him, we know he was real. That he rose again from the dead and gave us eternal life, and he gave us the promise that we could know for certain that if we die or whether we live, we're Christ forever. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. But then he also gave us the assurances. He said to us, you can know that you're saved, and that you know so by the way your life has been changed, by obedience to the word of God, by your love for the brethren, and that also that you have the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ within your heart, and that the Holy Spirit has filled you. And what this happened this past week was incredible to me. I had two men that I went to go see, both of them different perspectives. One man who came when I went to go see him, his brother had asked me to go see him, and I talked to him about, because both of the men know that they're dying. They both have cancer. And I sat down and had heart-to-heart -heart talks with them. The one man said to me, well, I appreciate you coming out, but, you know, you're wasting your time. Because I don't believe in that stuff. I know that's fine, and it's good for you, and that's good that you, you believe that. But I don't believe that, in fact, once you die, you die. It's over. And man, I 
struggled about that in my heart, and I was praying, Lord, give me an opportunity to share with him the gospel. And I started to, and he said, don't, don't try. He said, you're well-meaning, and I know that, and you care about me, and that's fine. And my heart was broken because he didn't really give me much of an opportunity and said, well, I hope you've come to understand this before you leave this life. He says, well, once I leave this life, I'm not going anywhere. I'm just going in the ground. The second man also, I talked with him, and he knows he's dying. He has cancer. And one of the things we talked about is his faith, and he shared about his faith and how he loved Jesus, and it was wonderful. And I said, well, when the time comes, the Lord will come and he'll take you home. And he says, well, I hope so. And then I sat down with him and talked about this very text because of the hope that he has in Jesus, that he can know for certain that as he leaves this life, and because he believes in Jesus Christ, that it's on Christ who will take him home. And even if our belief is weak, he will take us home into eternity. What a blessing that was. Well, folks, today, we're looking at a, uh, the third epistle of John. Last week, we talked about the second epistle of John. We talked about the balance between love and truth. You can't have truth. You can't have good love without the truth upholding it. And you can't have the truth sincerely given to you unless it's given in love. And this is what we are. We are as Christians, we're balanced. And the gospel here and the epistle here is teaching us how to do that. And John does that in a beautiful way. There's a lot of people who believe in love, but it's the mushy kind of love. There's, there's nothing of substance behind it. But John talked about the love of God that has the complete, total truth that can't be changed. And it's there forever. And no matter how much we want to change it or vote on it, it is truth no matter what. It's transcended. It's been set in stone by God and it will not be changed. And that anyone who believes that and who preaches another gospel other than the truth of the gospel, he says they're antichrist. Well, today we come to the third epistle. And John is speaking about these three people. And it's the shortest epistle John wrote. And he noticed he calls, he'll call himself the elder because he's the oldest. He's outlived Paul and Peter by about 30 years. He's about 90 years old. And John is um, speaking to these three men who are leaders in the church. And he knows what can happen to a church. The last book, chapter uh, 2 John, he spoke about to a congregation, a little congregation. But now... He is speaking to three men who are leaders in the church. And he knows the politics that can go on. He knows what wrong can go upon, go, go on in the church. And he wants to do a reality check with this church. And so John begins to speak about this politics. You know, there are a lot of people in the church who think they're really something and they're above everybody else. And that's what we're going to deal with today. But there's also people who are subversive. There are those who undermine things and are very quiet about it. They, they, they are passive-aggressive in diminishing the church by gossiping about it and pulling it down. And John begins to speak to this congregation and to these three people. And what John does is he wants them to realize, and this is what happens in the church, the church is full of sinners, and we all make our mistakes and choices. 
Sometimes politics does get in and people try to handle things in their own way, in their own sinful ways, rather than giving glory to God and working together to resolve the problem. And here John wants us to see that and there's different rivalries that can easily spur up. And so John talks to these three men. The three, three men are Gaius, the second man is Diotrephes, and the third man is Demetrius. Men who have different backgrounds and have come to know Christ are leading the church. And so in the first one is the flourisher, the elder of the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified of your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now here's Gaius. John is giving him encouragement. You know, there's one thing that's so beautiful is when we as Christians encourage other Christians and young Christians to give them pats on the back. We need that. And here John spots out the three glowing principles in Gaius' life. He says, number one, you're my beloved son because you're walking in the truth. You are a person who really understands that the only way to live your life is to walk in that truth, walk around in it, and live it out in your life. Secondly, that you're a very spiritual man, even though your health is bothering you. And there are times, we've had times when you've had your health bother you. It's even hard to think. And here he says, but even though your health is bothering you, you still remain a very strong spiritual man, and that you, even in poor health, are leading the congregation in the right way. And that there's a good report about you. People are spreading the word that you're such a good, godly man and you're helping us. And that you have great joy in what? Your witness because your children, the children who you've discipled, are living in the truth also. And I have great joy to see you who are also living in the truth and have loved the gospel. And so John here shows us, and one of the most important things we can do, folks, in our lives with other Christians is to encourage them. One of the saddest things that happens when churches get divisive or people begin to fight with each other in the church rather than seeing the enemy outside the door and bringing the gospel to them and working together and see how they... I played on football teams where we've had arguments in the huddle. You can't win a football game if you're arguing in the huddle with each other. But when I played on teams where they encourage you, you drop the ball, they get you back in the huddle, don't worry about it, come on, put it out of your mind, we're going to win this game. And you can do it, and you can catch that ball. That kind of encouragement helps and lifts us and helps us grow deep in the faith. And John sees this man who needs encouragement. He's in the battle here at the church because there's tough things going on at this church. And there's a growing Christian life. We need encouragement to each other. And that we not only need to encourage one another, but we also need people who will also stand by us but will also encourage us to intentionally grow in the faith every day. You know, there were times in my own life that I wanted to quit college. I wanted to give up on seminary. There were different spots in my life, but it wasn't for the encouragement of people around me who continued to encourage me to continue on, even when I didn't feel it anymore, was a strength that I needed to get me down the road. And it begins by being thinking out of yourself, but thinking of other people. Then the second thing he talks about is that his growth. 
Look at this stuff that he testifies to the truth. He's walking in the truth. One of the things how you walk in the truth is that you got to get more truth in you. You got to grow in that truth. And there's intentionally we need to do that because as you know, when you go through life, there are going to be curveballs. There are going to be difficulties that have come at your life. And you're going to need the strength, the inner strength to be able to experience Christ on a deeper level to break through that crisis and that you can overcome it through the power of the Holy Spirit given to you when you feed it with the word and it, it generates faith inside of you and that you flourish in the difficulties of life. Some people never flourish. They never learn how to get through that difficulty and they fold. How many marriages have you seen that don't know how to work through that difficulty and put Christ at the center of their home and wind up instead folding and divorcing or finding somebody else who they think is going to better meet them in their needs. And John sees in Gaius this ability to walk in the truth. Even through his own physical difficulties, he's walking through the truth. And he doesn't panic, but he intentionally continues to grow through his crisis. And he also talks about how, beloved, it is a faithful thing for you to do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify of your, to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the, the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers or the truth. Here John sees again in Gaius a different kind of attitude, a faithfulness that doesn't give up when times get tough. And that he spends and he sees himself as a, 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 a doorway into which God's power and grace can work in other people's lives. And what he does is he's this model that is willing to open up his heart to people around him to love them and to show them how to love one another and that he grasped people. And last, last, remember, if you remember last week in the book, he told uh, the people there not to let in Antichrist or people who were traveling preachers that were preaching the false gospel. He says, don't throw out the hand of hospitality to them. They don't deserve it. You don't want to be abetting and, a, and being an asset to them who are spreading false truth or false teachings, not truth. And he says, but you need, and this is what he says, Gaius is an example. Who brings in strangers who do preach the truth. And take all his assets and uses them for the glory of God. This is Gaius, who takes himself and puts himself out so that others can come and share the truth of the gospel. And notice he finds himself saying, this guy does it by the divine power of God in his heart. That he has an openness to others in his life and to the family. And that he has this rich inheritance that he wants to share to the world. And so Gaius is this wonderful open person who sees no stranger in his life. And here, this is where John comes from. John is probably talking about the loving guy that Gaius is. And how he uses everything that he has for the glory. See, Gaius has been changed. You think of John, the writer of this. He himself had problems with people. 
But when the process of God's truth enters into our life and begins to change us and works in us and we continue to allow it intentionally to change us, we become different people. Do you remember when John was walking around with Jesus and the disciples? They came onto Samaria and they were rejecting Jesus. And John, known as the son of thunder, says, Jesus, smoke them right now. Just nuke them. And guess what? Jesus says, no. John learns through this experience with Jesus. So that in his 30s, he was an angry, tough, hard-nosed guy. And at 90 years old, he's known as the apostle of love. Because he was changed. His heart was changed. And he became known as the apostle of love. He was the one who helped others learn how to love. And he sees this changed person in himself, and he sees it also in Gaius, who has a changed heart and is faithful to God's work. And he has a gift to love and be hospitable. And it all comes, and you see, John wants to encourage this young man, continue to do the fight Continue to walk in the way and open up his heart. John is saying to Gaius, Gaius, I'm proud of you. Of what you've become. How strong you've become. What you've learned in the gospel. Everybody needs encouragement and I want to encourage you for being in the battle and standing straw and not giving up but trusting Christ and loving strangers. I remember when we just moved here my wife took care of some of the kids in the neighborhoods whose parents were gone to work or mothers were single. Both the mothers were single and they had four children between the two of them. And I can remember them coming over after school and playing with our kids and then around supper time their parents came home they went back home and got their food and we'd be sitting around the dining room table. And guess who shows up to our back door? Listening in the screen. Four little kids looking at our house, looking inside and seeing five people sitting around the table. Not, not people just going in and grabbing something out of the refrigerator. Five people sitting around the table and talking about the Bible and then praying over people that they were in touch with or children that were going through things in their school. And those little kids were listening. Out of those little kids, two of them became doctors. Two of them became engineers. One of them became a missionary doctor who came to know Christ later on in his life. He was a young man who was troubled in his life. And I can remember the day I hadn't, we hadn't seen him probably in years. And he walks into our church. And we're sitting and, and, and he says, Pastor Dave, I need to talk to you. And we go into room 102. And sit down with him. His life was a mess. He was on drugs and all kinds of things. He says, I need to change. <laughs> we walked him through the gospel. He came to know Christ that day. And from that point on, he began to change his life according to Christ. 
married a Christian woman. And they had children, and he became a missionary in Africa for the gospel of Christ. <laughs> it's interesting how God works, isn't it? You don't even realize the influence you have by just the way you act. And here we see this. The same thing that does with Gaius who lives out his life faithfully for Christ is changing people around him. The way you act to parishioner or people that you come in contact and neighbors and friends, they're seeing it. You're applying it. You see, Gaius was a balanced man. He understood walking in the truth gave him that balance that held him back from his temptations and, and, and helped him through the persecutions that they were feeling. He was a faithful man. He gave himself to the truth and lived it out every day. And he was a big-hearted man. He opened his heart to many people with this gift of hospitality he had and used it, and it changed people. He supported Christian workers. The key is, and the truth is, that we need to be responsible for who we are and our growth. Take it in knowing the knowledge of Christ. And don't let it sit in there, but then he put it out there. He lived it out. And he encouraged people like John encouraged him. And it became powerful. And he used it when he was pushed to the edge. You know what that's like. When you think there's nothing more you can do and you can't handle another stressful thing in your life and you feel the power of Christ just pick you up and be faithful and trust Christ. And that's what Gaius did. You see, you and I live in a world right now that's really nothing new. But there are people who are trying to push Christianity out of our culture. Out of the market. You know, back in the 50s, people went to church. People went and did and honored God and understood the Judeo-Christian heritage that ran through this culture. Today, we have people who are trying to push Christianity away. Yesterday, my wife and I were watching a segment in TV. We're in a city up in New Hampshire. They're trying to rid of all Christmas ideas, any religious ideas. They had even a rabbi speaking about how it's foolish that they're taking Christianity out. Even though he doesn't believe in Christianity, he knows the value of it. And they want all colors, all anything with eternal look to it like a green wreath or a Christmas tree. They don't want it in their town. And they got the city council to not set up all that stuff. Even the menorah was not being set up. And, the, and, and you see, this is what has happened in our world. There are people who've tried to push Christianity out with science. Even though if you look into science, you see there's an intellectual behind the creating of this world. This thing didn't just come to being. There is something, an intelligent mind that put this together. But with that debate now off the table anymore, there's a new cultural debate. You see what the new debate is? The new debate is, oh, that's offensive. The Bible is too exclusive. Evangelicals are compared to radical terrorists of the Middle East. No matter what, 
Gaius still walked in that truth, and we need to walk in that truth. And that we live it out every day. And that we sound the voice. That we go around and not use our egos, but live for Christ. And let people see it in us. But you see, there are Christians who don't do like Gaius did. There was a flock. And John wants to deal with it right off the bat. He says, I have written something to the church about Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first and does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. This leader was pretty authoritarian, pretty arrogant. And John wants to deal with him because he sees what he's doing. You see, Diotrephes wants to be first. And anybody who disagrees with him, he immediately throws aside. Or he trashes them with gossip. He uses his mouth and wants to be a dictator. And he wants to be arrogant about his own. And one of the things that he doesn't like about John, this is why he talks down John and refuses to welcome John's disciples is because he's losing his market share when he gives them the ability to speak in the church. And Diotrephes' end is that he wants to be number one. And he's lying about John. He's pushing the truth out of the church. And even though he thinks he's right, he's spreading falsehood and lying. And it does not mean that he was cooperate, but what we do mean here that the, we see John dealing with Diotrephes, who's all about him and him alone, and that he wants to be in control. We see it when the description of Diotrephes is given here. What does it say? Number one, that he's self-willed. He wants to be first. Number two, that he's rebellious spiritually to any authority, any correction. And when somebody doesn't agree with him, he slanders them and maliciously gossips. And he refuses, he's ungracious, the brothers in Christ who should be welcoming him. And he's an abuser of power. This is tragically some of the churches that we hear about, some of the mega churches. It's tragic that all of a sudden people come out because of the abuse of power that takes place in these large organizations. They want, to be the church, they want to be the church boss or the church godfather. And they lose their footing. And we see this paradox, you see, between Gaius and Diotrephes. Gaius who gave himself to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Diotrephes who just was worried about himself. Liked to talk about himself. Liked to see everybody mirror him rather than Christ. Diotrephes has wanted the attention. He wanted to be in control. And you see, he's destroying the church, destroying the gospel. Diotrephes approached to work in the church as a battle, that he was in control. Legendary church consultant from the Methodist Church, a guy by the name of Lyle Schauer. 
he'd say that the estimate of churches being held back in doing the gospel is about three-quarter of the churches because of destructive conflict in the church. People wanting their own way, wanting to control. This is not the gospel. I urge you, brothers, said Paul, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in the way of the gospel. Conflict can easily arise when people want their way rather than share the truth. And this was Diotrephes. He was cantankerous. He started trouble so that he could gain control, divide and conquer. This was the guy, self-seeking, wanting his own way. And we have to ask ourselves, when we have clashes, how do we operate? Do we trust Christ and walk boldly and lovingly to clarify and get it right? Or do we fall into the pattern that Diotrephes, running his mouth, gossiping, saying all kinds of evil against John. You know, our mouths are quite a weapon, folks. You know it. The Bible tells us in Ephesians that we're to not let any unwholesome word come out of our mouth. That our words are to be full of grace and truth and work together and love people through the crisis. And I know, though, sometimes there are people who are unworkable. They don't want to work through it. They want to be obnoxious. They get a kick out of having the power. James says to us, this mouth here is like a rudder of a ship. It's so small. But it controls us. And it can change the direction of a large ship. That little rudder. That's what our mouths can do, and that's what Diotrephes was doing. And the Bible tells us that we're to use it for grace and truth. And that we're not to let our selfish ambition run our lives, but humbly consider others better than ourselves, Paul says in Philippians. Ask yourself, what kind of symptoms do you have? Do you have a diatrophies disease? How does your mouth go and your mind go when somebody disagrees with you? What do you say? As growing Christians, we are to love and speak the truth in love and in grace. But now, John. After dealing with diatrophies, he talks to Demetrius. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, and who does evil has not seen God. So the proof is in the pudding is how we're acting. Sees whether or not we really are touched by Christ. And then he says, verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. He says, we love this guy, Demetrius. He's the same type of person as Gaius is. He's a model. He's exemplary in the way he acts as a Christian, the way he lives. 
He's worth imitating. He's got such a good report about him. Both he and Gaius are standing in the word of God and living it out. He's a good man of well repute. I hope that everyone can say that about us. That people see us and say, that's a person you can trust. That's a person who will be faithful. That's a person who you can lean on if you need it. See, that's the consistency that Demetrius showed. And he lived that good life of light for God. It's amazing about Demetrius. There's a Demetrius that's spoken of in Acts chapter 19. And in Acts chapter 19, if you remember, Paul was in the city of Ephesus. And Armaeus was being worshipped and, uh, and he was a false god. He was an idol. And they had all these unions working because they made the metal for these gods and people would come in and buy Artemis the god. And Demetrius was part of that crowd who turned on Paul at that point because he wasn't saved. And he got a riot started. And there, Gaius and Aristarchus were beaten. And we don't understand, but what happens is later on, Demetrius, we see here. And the question is, did Demetrius, seeing how Gaius and Artemis lived and went through their suffering, trusting Christ, did that start a fire in his heart that led him to Christ. Because the way he handled that beating and that hurt and that pain and did not point God or blame God or blame those people, but how they loved him anyway. That his growth in Christ gave him the strength to stand and that what happened with Demetrius, his heart was changed by seeing how Gaius and Artemis handled they're beating. <laughs> you know, sometimes God allows things to happen to us, you know, so that we can show God's work in our lives in Christ by the crises that we go through and how we handle them. It's a tremendous witness. And was that what happened with Demetrius here? That his heart was turned and changed by Christ by how Gaius and Aristocharis took the beating for the Lord and how they exemplified to him the power of the gospel in their hearts. You see, here Demetrius now is a faithful follower of Christ. John pulls him in and says he's true. He's favored. The way we act, folks, the way we exemplify our Christian faith shows a lot to people and we don't even know how it's affecting them. Because of our consistency though. You may get in heaven someday and somebody say, hey, do you remember when? How you did this? And I was so touched by that that I thought I started looking into Christ who I knew was in your heart. 
It's important. Even the most little, tiny thing. I was reading about President William McKinley back in 1887, I believe, or 97 to 1901. He was the President of the United States. And at that time, he was considering what we now call as a diplomat, and they called then a, a minister to a foreign country. And he had this one representative that he thought would be the guy. And in those days, they really didn't have secret service. <laughs> McKinney got in on the train and headed home. And while he was there, he recognized the fellow who he was thinking about this high-level position of diplomat. And the train was packed. And at the next stop, a little woman, a washwoman, walked in the train and went past McKinley and all the way walked to the other end. And there was this fellow sitting there. And when the fellow, he watched him, and when he saw the lady standing with this heavy wash basket, he picked up his paper and hid himself because he didn't want to be faced with it. And McKinley saw this, and at that moment he made a decision. He was not going to invite that man to be a diplomat because he didn't have a servant's heart. And McKinley got up from his chair, went over to the washroom and grabbed her washing and told her to go and sit in his seat. Because, and at that point, that man never even realized that McKinley was going to pick him to be an ambassador until he saw that event of that man's selfishness. And you see, those little things that we do, you may not think they're nothing. And God takes them and will make them sometimes eternal values in the lives of people you touch or even pass by. You see, and that's why in the end, John wants to see the congregation now face to face. He loves them. But he knows face to face is way to go. Think about it. When we were going through the COVID thing, how many people finally were happy that we were allowed to go and visit people again? See them face to face. Have experiences with families and friends again. I remember when they started lifting it and see the restaurants again being filled with people smiling and laughing. And it even made us a little hesitant to get even close. And here, John says, and he sees it back in his day, there's, uh, he says, look what he says. He says, I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. There's something about the face to face. There's something about fellowship that we need. You see, fellowship not only encourages us in the value as we come together and worship here and we see each other, we're encouraging each other saying, this is the truth and we want to walk together with this in the truth. There's an accountability that we know that comes with that when we come face to face and when we have contact. And that we see all the crazy theories and 
the, the conspiracy theories that people are so tied up in, and social media has just become a, an amplifier for this stuff. And you realize people stayed alone, home alone too long and made this stuff up. It's interesting. We need each other. We need the encouragement. We need the accountability. We need the reinforcement of our values. I was reading about President Lincoln signing the Homestead Act on 1862. And what they were going to do is they were granting any Americans who wanted to, who would fill the paperwork out, a plot of 160 acres out in the far west here, out in the west here, and that they could sell it. They could settle it, whether they were slaves or they were immigrants or even women were allowed to settle their own property and become landowners for the first time in their lives. And you know how when programs start out, sometimes they don't go that well? That's what they found out. Because what was happening is people would buy their land, but then they'd set their house in the middle of the place so nobody could bother them. I don't want to be bothered by my neighbors. And as it went on, the program, the government sent out officials to check and see how it was going. And they found these people who put their houses in the middle of the land were weird. They had lost touch with reality, some of them. They didn't know how to deal with life. And they had lost perspective. And so the government made it that if you bought one of these 660-acre plots, you were connected by three other plots than yours. And that at that corner, all four families needed to settle and put their houses on those corners. So there was four families that could socialize and keep each other on track socially and mentally. Otherwise, they'd get weird. And we in the church have the body of Christ. And we have each other to encourage, to keep each other accountable, remind and reinforce the values that Christ has come. And that's what we're supposed to do in the church and reinforce those transcendent values that Christ gives. And when we don't do that, when people say, well, I'm going to have my own religious faith or I'm going to watch TV and just stay home, they're missing out on a tremendous variable that God has given to us through fellowship. And what happens is, when a person thinks they don't need God, or they're beyond needing to be sociable, or they get in the wrong social groupings, which is happening in our world today, they can easily lose their bearings. We all know Diotrephes lost his bearings. In our world today, there are many people who have lost their bearings. They just have had enough money to cover it or wealth to do it. One such family was seen very loudly in our culture when Lori Laughlin, the actress, 
was sentenced to two months in federal prison for the role she played in the college admissions scandal. And she was released after the two years and 100 hours of community service and that she paid a $150,000 fine and that her husband also did five months in prison, paid $250,000 and 250 hours of community service. And the judge, the U.S. Court District Judge, Nathaniel Gortman, said to them as they stood before him in court, ashamed, embarrassed. He said, here you are, admired by the public, successful, professional actor, actress, with the longest marriage, and apparently very healthy children, and more money than you could ever possibly need, a beautiful mansion, in sunny California, a fairy tale life, and yet you stand before me, a convicted felon, for what? For the inexplicable desire to grasp for more. She lost her bearings. We need each other. We need each other in the faith to hold up the values and the morals so that we can be consistent disciples of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this day. And I want to thank you for these, your servants, as they, in the grind of the everyday, want to live for you. I pray, Jesus, that you give them that strength. Give them hearts like Gaius and Demetrius, who love you and are faithful and that, Lord, that no matter what comes their way, they have a faith in you, Jesus, that will carry them through it and they will shine bright as stars. I thank you, Lord, for them and for us being on the team together that we can show the world the light, the truth, and the way by the way we live, how we treat each other, how we talk, Christ, let us glow this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's close together as we receive our benediction and sing our closing song. Please rise. And now in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, your Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.